Good morning, church family. It's good to see everybody. That is the perfect song to walk up as a preacher. Speak, O Lord. I mean, really, we're singing a prayer that God will speak to us through the preached word. And just a, just a thought that I just want to emphasize to our church that everything is building up to this apex here. The reason why we worship is to encounter God. And really, the songs that are sung, the scripture that is read by Brother Tom, all that is building up into the sermon here. The prayers that are prayed, even a testimony about having a written word for us to appreciate that we have the written word in various translations or, or versions in the English language for us to treasure God's word. And so I hope that we come to the Lord's Day service. This is the pinnacle event of the week for, for Evergreen Church. And the apex of this event is when we get to hear God's word preached. And so I, I would encourage us to come early. Let the announcement time kind of be a warm-up. But then when the call to worship happens, let's get ready to encounter God, to literally hear from God's voice. And this is what we do. This is why we commit to preaching. Everything is building up to this moment. And then we'll, we'll pray, and then we'll sing some response songs based on what we just preached. So this is very much crafted to building up to this moment right now. So let me just pray and ask the Lord, speak, O Lord, into our hearts through the written and preached word of God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the written word that we have in our hands let us never be bored or take it for granted that we have God's word, your word, literally in our hands. So, Father, will you speak to us? Speak, O oh Lord, till your church is built and that the whole earth will be filled with your glory. Father, as, as was sung in verse 1, that the light of Christ might be seen today. Help us to see Jesus Christ more clearly today through your preached word. So Father God, I pray, Lord, for a supernatural event right now, that your Holy Spirit will allow me to preach with power, with conviction. I pray your spirit will guard my heart from sin. Allow me to be a pure vessel before you and before the people of Evergreen Church. Father, I pray your spirit will allow us to see your son, Jesus Christ, more clearly after this sermon. So thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Seeing Jesus clearly is the title of the sermon today. And really what Mark does is he takes us to the apex of his gospel. Right now he takes us above the clouds, above the smog, and we're able to get a clear view of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what this portion of scripture is about. And seeing is the issue, but it's not the only issue. Not only do we need to see Christ, we're going to learn from the scriptures that we need to see him clearly. All right? We need to see him very clearly. And because as a Christian man or woman, the more you see Christ clearly, the more you're going to love him. The more you're going to be like him. The more you're able to walk with life and confidence. The more joy we'll be able to experience because we'll be able to recognize him working in our lives. There's less guessing at that point. And this is a, a joy of a pastor to see the church, the Christians in the church, 
just overflowing with joy because we are followers of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're gonna, we need to see Jesus more clearly today. And before we ascend to the mountaintop, the Everest of the Gospel of Mark, there's an object lesson here. And there's a healing that takes place. And the Lord is using that to teach the disciples something about seeing, about spiritual vision. But also he's teaching us today too. So we're going to be at a Mark chapter 8, 22 to 33. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up the written word. What a joy it is, as Paul and Prudence shared, uh, that we have the written word in our hands. So let's rise. And if you have a phone, that's fine too. But what a privilege, what a, an immense treasure that we have in our hands right now. Mark 8, 22 to 33. And they came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to Jesus and pleaded with him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he was asking him, do you see anything? And he looked up and was saying, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and, and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village, verse 27. And Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he was asking his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. Please have a seat. This is a three-part sermon today. Today we're going to learn how Jesus treats spiritual vision, tests our spiritual vision, and trains our spiritual vision. Treats, tests, and trains. The healing of the blind man is a historical event. This is not some allegory where this is some uh, fairy tale that Mark puts in. This actually happened but it's also meant as an object lesson for the 12. Keep in mind, the Lord is preparing the 12 to take on the mission after the Lord dies and resurrects and ascends back into heaven. This is a training mission. This is an object lesson for them, but also for us. Why do I feel this way? Well, this is another Mark sandwich. What do I mean by that? This portion is sandwich or brackets the blind Pharisees and adult disciples. The blind Pharisees and adult disciples. At one end of, the, of this chunk is the portion where Jesus heals a deaf man who couldn't hear, who couldn't understand, who couldn't perceive. And this bookend describes how a blind man is able to see. It's all about perceiving. It's all about hearing and understanding and seeing and believing. 
In between is unbelief and dullness. So today, this portion is about how Jesus deals with our spiritual vision. And seeing Jesus, is, Jesus clearly is very important. So let's go to point number one. Jesus treats our spiritual vision. Verse 22, it says this, and they came to Bethsaida, which is North, North Shore Galilee. This is a fishing town. It's called the house of fish. That's what Bethsaida means. And what is the problem? They brought a blind man to Jesus. Physical blindness is the issue. And they pleaded with him to touch him. They, they, this blind man, just like other friends that have brought people to Jesus, the paralytic, the deaf man, right? This man is loved by people. He's waiting to go see Jesus Christ. He's the one and only one that could give you your sight. So they demand, they plead, please, Lord, please, Jesus, touch him. Heal him of this. He's been suffering for many years. How does physical sight work in our eyes? You guys know this? I did a little research. And how does physical sight work in our eyes? Well, it's an amazing thing. Light travels through the cornea, hits the back of the eye, which where the retina is. And the retina actually converts that light into an electrical signal that travels through the optic nerve into your brain, and then voila, you see an image. I see the congregation sitting before me today. Amazing. That's how this works. So how, why was this man blind? We don't know. Maybe he was born blind. Perhaps he had some kind of form of cataracts that covers his, his eyes so that no light could come through. Perhaps he has retina damage. Maybe glaucoma, which affects the optic nerve. We don't know. But the, any one of these things and various other things could cause blindness, physical blindness. But what does the Lord do? Well, the Lord does the impossible. He gives sight to this blind man. But not just does a miracle, but let's just see the beauty and the love of our Lord here. This, the Lord treats this blind man with incredible kindness with compassion. Look at what he says in verse 23. He took him by the hand. He takes him by the hand, another grown man by the hand, and leads him away. And then what does he do? He spits on his eyes and touches him. I think, I believe this is a loving thing to do, to communicate to him, I'm going to do something about your eyes. And he asks him, do you see anything? Do you see anything? He just doesn't act and walk away. He makes sure, how are you doing? Do you see anything? And the man says, I see men looking like trees. He has, he has his eyes restored yet. It's very blurry. The healing is not complete yet. So the, the Lord gives him another second treatment. He touches his eyes. And then all of a sudden, do you, how do you see? He, the Bible says that he began to see everything clearly. Perhaps for the first time in his life. I mean, just like every miracle that the 12 is able to see, there's a lesson here. <laughs> that lesson is very clear, that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Who else could heal other than Jesus Christ? But also you see the tender and merciful side of the Lord as he deals with this blind man. You see, church, not only are we serving God, we are serving the God, the one and true living God who's speaking through us through his word, a God, the God that loves us and cares for you right now. 
Whatever you're going through, the Lord knows, and the Lord is being tender with you and me right now. This is the type of God that we serve. Now, why do you think Mark records this progressive healing? Why does Jesus not heal him immediately? This is the only portion in Scripture where a healing is incomplete. Why does the, why does the Lord take two steps instead of just getting it done with one treatment. It's not because the Lord is like, I don't know how to handle blindness. I don't think the Lord is experimenting. I don't think the Lord is trying to figure it out. How does this scene work? He spoke eyeballs into existence. He's the creator of eyes and seeing. He's the one that architected the whole thing. He knows how this works. It's not because of that. But it is quite significant why there is a progression. Why does Mark add this portion in his gospel? The Lord is making a point. And as we see what's coming up in the next couple of verses with the 12, you're going to see that there's a parallel here. There's a pattern of seeing, but seeing more clearly. And so that's just keep that in mind. We're going to be applying what happened here in this healing into the other portions with the 12 disciples. Really, it shows us how spiritual vision is developed. The Lord is going to show us. We've all been there before. Some of us are drive and we got we need to take the eye test right some of us need glasses like myself so we gave able to see the eye doctor we've been there before you know read the first line right one of our eyes is covered and l p e d very good how about how about the third line a little bit smaller but can you do this f e l o i think is that a P or a B? I'm not sure. Z and a D. Not bad, right? So we've been through that. We've, we've taken those. Every one of us has perhaps gone through that, or many, most of us have gone through that. And this is what the Lord does for the disciples in the next, next portion. Jesus tests our spiritual vision. He goes, I know you can see, but I want to know how well you can see 12 disciples because you need to be able to see in order to continue on with the work that I've given you to do. So they head north from Bethsaida. They head north to Caesarea Philippi. Verse 27 says, and Jesus went out along with his disciples, the 12, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he was asking his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? This test fails here, by the way. I mean, in other words, he's saying, what does popular opinion say about who I am? Well, verse 28, this says, John the Baptist, others Elijah, perhaps one of the prophets. This is what popular opinion is saying who you are. John the Baptist, great, the greatest born of a woman. You, the Her King Herod Antipas, thinks you're a reincarnated John the Baptist. Elijah, Elijah, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, he will be on the Mount Rushmore of the prophets of the Old Testament. He's the guy. He's the one of the two guys that didn't die. He actually went on a chariot, a fiery chariot, right, went right up to heaven. You must be the him then who's come back to earth. Now, ah, maybe some kind of a prophet, one who, a, a, a noble man who speaks for God. Did popular opinion pass the exam? No, that's a fail. That's an, that's, you do not get to drive, okay? That's, you, do, you just failed that test. 
You have spiritual cataracts. You cannot see. No light is coming through if that's your answer. I mean, think about it. All these people, the Pharisees and other uh, travelers and other people who hung out around Jesus, they saw the miracles. They heard the teachings. They even reasoned through the Old Testament scriptures. They had all that information. Physically, they could see these things. But spiritually, they were blind. Yet they could not see anything. And really, after 2,000 years, it's still the same. It's an undeniable fact that a man named Jesus Christ existed and walked the earth. Undeniable fact. Every historian would say a man named Jesus Christ walked the face of the earth. Why do we know this? Well, major religions have been birthed out of the person of Jesus Christ. The calendar system has been developed because Jesus Christ existed. Universities and ethics and morals have been established because of Jesus Christ. Humanitarian efforts have been established in the name of Jesus Christ. No one has impacted the world more than Jesus Christ. Life Magazine even puts him up as one of the most influential people that ever existed, along with Oprah and Jobs and, and Einstein and others. <laughs> But even Life magazine would say he exists and he was quite influential. Even the major false religions of the day. My Muslim friends would say that Jesus Christ is a prophet. We believe in him, just like what was read earlier. Others would say he's an angel or a created son of God. But not the creator, but a created son of God. The secular world would say that Jesus was the greatest moral teacher that ever existed. He's a revolutionary who came to make good social changes. If that's your answer, you're blind too. You don't pass the spiritual eye exam. But look what the Lord does here. He tests the disciples and he continues questioning them, the 12. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter, speaking for the 12, he's He's oftentimes a spokesman. He was their leader underneath Jesus. Peter said to him, you're the Christ. And Matthew 16 gives us more. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, he is fired up. And Jesus was saying, bingo, Peter, bingo. You passed the test. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Barjona, son of Jonah, Light is getting through now. You're understanding who I am. I and mean, after two and a half years of traveling with Jesus and, and, and being trained by Jesus himself, they're starting to get it. They're starting to get it. The 12 are finally starting to realize that Jesus is the Christ. What is the Christ, if you're wondering? Simply means the anointed one or the Messiah. Isaiah 61 once is the anointed one from God. This is prophecy of the coming Messiah or the Christ. The anointed one who brings good news. The, the, the anointed one from God who, who binds up the brokenhearted. The anointed one from God who to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and captives. This is God's appointed liberator. And so he's the one that's going to make all things good. And this is important for us to understand. What is the, the theology and the doctrine that's being taught right here by the Lord? How did Peter pass the test? And think about your own life as well and others that you're trying to evangelize right now. How did Peter pass his spiritual eye test here? 
Well, number one, he received the external witness. What is that? He received the external witness. That means he had the Old Testament scriptures. He knew, he knew prophecy. He knew that there was a coming Messiah. He heard Jesus' teachings. The best divine teacher, preacher of all time. He sat under Jesus' teaching. He saw the attesting miracles, the feeding of the 4,000, the 5,000, the blind man, the deaf man, the lepers, walking on water, calming the storm. Peter saw these things firsthand. But he required something more because he was still dull. I mean, the Pharisees saw all this and they were blind. That is the external witness. That is the external witness. Things that you could observe with your eyes and your ears. That's the external witness. But he needed something more to pass this, this spiritual eye test now. He needed one other thing. Not only did he need to receive the external witness, he needed to receive the internal witness. External, internal. What is this? What are you talking about? Matthew 16, 17. His blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. This is not an intellectual thing only. But my Father who is in heaven, my Father in heaven is the one that gave you brand new spiritual eyeballs. You were blind just like the Pharisees until my Father in heaven gave you spiritual eyes to see. He gave you a brand new spiritual retina to be able to transfer this information that you're receiving into your spiritual mind so that you would believe that he is the Christ. This is very important for us to understand this doctrine. So as we evangelize people, as the Lord calls us to evangelize people, how do you deal with the spiritually blind? That's, this is an application here for us. How do you deal with the, those who are spiritually blind? I mean, in some ways, perhaps the Lord has prepared some people to just jump into the boat, right? You, you just mentioned Jesus. They're ready to give their lives to Christ. But others... They just look at you as if, I hear you, but that's crazy. How do you deal with spiritual blindness? I can think of people that I've been evangelizing for 20 years. We've talked the same things. We explained doctrine. I prayed for them, talked to them, tried to live out a genuine Christian life, but nah, nah. Maybe you think about your next door neighbor that you've been living uh, across from for years, maybe even decades. Maybe childhood friends that you've been evangelizing and trying to witness to, right? Think, who comes to mind? There's some, certainly there's someone that comes to mind. Where Brother Tom just read earlier out of 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, see how all the things are tied together? All the scripture reading is meant to undergird the sermon generally. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that they are blind. They are blind. Just like earlier in the uh, miracle that took place. This man was blind. He couldn't see anything. He couldn't see anything. But the Bible says that lost people are spiritually blind. They may receive the external witness, but internally it's just pitch dark. In 2 Corinthians 4, 5 and 6, I was just prayed by uh, Pastor Victor, and thank, we're thanking God for this, which happened to any of us who are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 says this, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. How do you deal with spiritual blindness? Just simply do your part. Preach Jesus Christ. Tell him the gospel as clearly and plainly as possible. That's our role. Give people Christ. Christ. 
Take people by the hand and say, hey, this is Jesus. Take your blind friends and tell them and describe to them who Jesus Christ is. That's what we need to do. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 says this. And jump down to verse 6. What else should we do? Verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What does that mean? The same God that said, let there be light in, in, in creation is the same God that needs to give light into the darkened hearts of lost people so that they could have spiritual vision. So not only should you preach about Jesus Christ and the gospel, pray for the internal witness to take place in the heart of your lost friend or your relative. Pray. And thirdly, be at peace with it. Preach, pray, and be at peace. That's what you, we need to do. Because no matter how great the external witnesses, I mean, the Pharisees and the others, there's no greater witness than you could have than having Jesus teach you personally and Jesus performing miracles. There's no greater witness. No greater witness than having years and years of tr training to understand the Old Testament scriptures. Give them what you got. Tell them about Christ and pray that God will give them the internal witness. Isn't that interesting? So simple, yet I think if we understand this, yet profound, so we, we, the Lord will leave us at peace as we look to evangelize other people. Now verse 30, going back to Mark uh, 8.30, the Lord says in verse 30, and he warned them to tell no one about him. What? I thought... That's what the disciples were meant to do. Go tell people. Go shout it on the mountaintop, right? They're in Caesarea Philippi, north, right? At the foot of Mount Hermon. I thought he would say, run up to Mount Hermon at the peak and shout about Jesus, right? That's what we're supposed to shout it on the mountaintops. But he says, tell no one. Why? Very logical because their view of the Lord was still blurry. They still saw the Lord like the blurry trees like this blind man saw. They weren't ready. To, they, they would give an incomplete gospel message to people. And we're going to find that out right now. Point number three. Jesus trains our spiritual vision. Not only does he treat, not only does he test us where we're at, he also trains our spiritual vision. He doesn't just leave us right there. He finds out where we're at, and then he trains us. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he goes stating the matter openly or plainly. The Lord was not speaking to them in, in parabolic language or some kind of a metaphor. He's plainly telling them, I will die. And the religious rulers, the Sanhedrin, are going to hand me over to the godless men, the, the Romans, and I'm going to get killed. I'm going to die. For the sins of this world. He's telling them plainly. The son of man. This is a title. Another title for the divine ruler. Found in Daniel chapter 7. The Lord is telling him. I must suffer. There's no other way. There's no other way. And in verse 32. You get the most stunning response. To show how blurry Peter must have been. In his vision towards the Lord. After ascending to the Everest of, of the gospel of Mark. After proclaiming the most profound truth about Christ, Peter, the one that we love, the one that you and I can identify with, falls off the cliff, okay? I mean, what in the world? 
he, he saw Jesus, but it was, he wasn't quite clear yet. Verse 32, what does he do? And Peter took him aside. Come with me, Lord. I need to have a private word with you. I mean, can you imagine that? Come with me. I, I, I don't want to embarrass you in front of the rest of the 11. Come, come with me, Lord. And what does he do? He began to rebuke him. This word rebuke in the original language is a strong word. It means to reprove, to admonish. It's not, hey, let me share something with you, Lord. This is, I got something to tell you now. I need to set you straight. This is the same word rebuke that the Lord uh, is described when he's talking about casting out demons and rebuking the wind. I mean, there's force, there's power in this word. With all that, he must have missed the resurrection on the third day, right? That must have just gone right over his head. You're going to die? At that point, he stopped listening. What does he say? Matthew 16, 22 gives us more detail. God forbid it, Lord. This is what Peter says. This shall never happen to you. Not on my watch. Absolutely not. This is a horrible plan, Lord. Not one of us thinks this is a good idea. There's no way you should do this. We've seen you do the miracles. You could take the Romans. You don't have to die. I mean, this is like Peter. I could see him as an intense man. But I think it's important for us to understand the mentality of Peter. Let's go underneath the skin a little bit here. Why was Peter so passionately objecting to this idea? Number one, I think he genuinely loved the Lord. He doesn't want anything bad to happen to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a friend. This is my rabbi. This is my Lord. But number two, I think, gets into a deeper uh, reason here for Peter objecting so hardly, so, so forcefully, excuse me. Caesarea Philippi. This, there's a clue here. Caesarea Philippi. The, the, Mark adds in Caesarea Philippi is where they're at. And this is a significant backdrop to this whole saga that's taking place with Peter. What's so significant about Caesarea Philippi? This is a power center. This is a political power center and, and a religious power center. I mean, Philip, uh, Herod, established this place to honor Caesar Augustus, to honor and to affirm that Caesar is Lord. That's number one. Rome had its fingerprints all over that place. This is like going to the capital of United States of America, Washington, D.C., and seeing all the monuments set up. This is our American heritage. This is who we had as our forefathers. This is a significant site here. Number two, this, this is a religious power center. Baal worship was prominent here. But pagan Greek gods were, were worshipped here, and they established all these idols. Being there in, four or five years ago, I call it the Mall of Gods. You go in there, you choose which God you want to worship. It's like going to Santa Anita and finding the, the best shoe store you want to go to. Whatever God that you want to worship, he was there. And the whole area used to be called Panaeus, named after Pan. Pan is a mythological God who's half man, half goat, who used to play a flute and terrorize people on the fields. And this, this temple to Pan was a, is a huge cave, and they believed that it was a portal into the pit of hell where they would throw dead animals, dead sacrifices to appease Pan from terrorizing them. So keep this in mind as Peter is in this scenario here in this backdrop, and also keep this in mind where one of the most glorious statements is ever made by the Lord Jesus Christ. Upon this rock, this truth of who Jesus Christ is, not on Peter, but on the truth of who Christ is, I will build my church. 
And what, what else does he say? And the gates of Hades or the gates of hell, not even Pan or this other God or even Caesar, we would stand against the church. I get fired up hearing this myself. And I've said it to myself a ton of times this past week. How can you not get excited hearing that? And there's this vivid backdrop where Peter's saying, yeah, that's right. That's right. Peter must have been thinking, yes. I left my fishing business. It's all going to pay off. I knew he was the right one. I knew it. I knew it in my bones. He'll take, he'll take care of Caesar. He'll get rid of the religious elite. And we're going to rule them right now. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. I don't need that fishing business. I don't need some old relationship. I got this now. See, a dying Messiah did not fit into his vision of, of the Christ. And this is blew his mind. There's no way the Christ is supposed to die. Christ is supposed to come on a, 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 in a Sherman tank and destroy everybody and take over. This is how this works, right, Lord? Interesting, I did some more research on how seeing works. And some of us... Or some people who have blind spots, physical blind spots, as they see, deal with that. And, and the mind is an amazing creation by the Lord. The mind is able to fill in some of these blind spots to kind of so we have a clear picture. But sometimes this could be dangerous. If, if I'm just standing here with some blind spots and my mind fills in the empty spaces, that's okay. But it becomes a dangerous thing when you're driving and you're trying to make a right turn. You don't, you don't see that person walking across the street. That becomes a problem. So relying on this filling in process can be dangerous driving, but also could be dangerous in our spiritual vision as well. Because this is where we get unmet expectations. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my preaching heroes that I often try to look, look up to and learn from, says this, I'm concerned about those Christians who are disquieted, that, mean, that means like unsettled, unhappy, and miserable because of this lack of clarity. He's saying that many Christians are unsettled, unhappy, and miserable because of lack of clarity for the Lord. What they do is mix their own ideas with spiritual truth. They fill in their spiritual blind spots with how they want to see it or how they see Christ in their lives. Of course, they claim that basically they take it from the scriptures, but that is the fatal world. They immediately proceed to modify it, it meaning the word of God. How you see it, not how God says it to be. That's a dangerous thing. In applying this to ourselves, when have you acted like Peter? When have I acted like Peter? Oftentimes this happens with unmet expectations. When the Lord doesn't function the way we envision him to do it for us, unhappiness could come. I remember talking to professed believers when difficult things happened in their family, in their relationships. I don't know if I believe in God anymore. Well, I understand that's hard, but really? You're disconnecting, you're divorcing God because of that? I don't know, God, God would never do this. God would never allow this to happen. I don't believe in God anymore. Okay? I mean, this could be describing some of us today. Maybe you think Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, 
But Jesus was to save us from the culture, return us back to a Judeo-Christian culture in America. Perhaps Jesus is supposed to fix the government. If we get the right leader in place, everything will be fixed. I'm not saying that can't help, but that's, is that really the idea here, why Jesus came? Jesus came to fix my marriage and my kids. Is that the reason why Christ came? Christ came, and I believe in Christ because I believe he's going to give me a better working situation or help, my, help me out with my finances. Certainly he cares for our daily bread. That's what the Bible says. What a reminder for all of us. Right now you might be pricked to the heart like, yeah, I've thought that before. Perhaps it's because you don't understand God's word about who he says he is. And this is why we commit to Bible exposition. This is why we commit to scripture reading. This is why we commit to adult education. This is why we commit to singing truth about songs, you know, that about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we vet all the lyrics. That's why we vet uh, even the prayers are accurate. We're praying in Jesus' name according to the scriptures. Just like the blind man needed a second treatment, all right, Jesus gives the 12 another treatment for their blind spots because they're filling in Christ with their own ideas here. Verse 33, what does the Lord do? But turning around and seeing his disciples, the 12, this is important that I point this out, and turning around and seeing his disciples, that means that the Lord groups the whole 12 in this rebuke. Although Peter was the one who spoke out brashly, and oftentimes Peter gets the heat, it's really all 12 felt the same thing. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, that same hard, strong word that Peter used, that was used to describe Peter, and said, I mean, I don't know how much stronger you could get than this. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. What does that mean? Well, for Jesus explains, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Whenever we speak for our own interests or the interests of the world, even good things such as we need to prioritize the environment, we need to prioritize the moral ethics of our culture, these are good things. You may be speaking for Satan because you're not coming along the Lord's plan. You could be distracting others from following the Lord's plan. And this is why Peter is admonished so sternly because you're trying to distract me from obeying the Father. It's the Father's perfect plan to send me to die to save sinners. Yet you're telling me not to, Peter. Have we done that with other people? Have we got our eyes off of heaven and onto this earth and trying to preserve what's going on here? Have we got our, eye, our eyes off of heaven into, oh, you got to, you know, steward that, uh, that career that you have so you can't leave to serve the Lord. Get your eyes off of heaven and to maintain you got a legacy with a family. I just wrote a paper this last week and, um, and the assignment was to study contemporary preaching. What type of preaching is out there? And this is important for me to study as a preacher. And what I come to discover is that so many pulpits have been convinced by Satan to focus on man's interests. So many pulpits. 
This is a rare thing that takes place here by God's grace and messages that focus on personal triumph, holding, uh, embracing the power within you, fulfilling what's the vision God's given you, focusing on messages, focusing on the family, messages focusing on, on the practical, pragmatic issues of life. Not wrong things now, mind you, just not ultimate things. Just enough degrees off to get our eyes onto earth instead of into heaven. Just enough to give enough blind spots in our spiritual vision so that we see the world more clearly than Christ. These type of preaching neglect the glories of Christ. You know, they, they leave many Christians or professed Christians with a blurry view of the Lord. I mean, the glories of Christ are secondary. Yeah, yeah, we may th th throw this in at the end of the sermon. I mean, things of judgment against sinners, doctrines such as repenting of sins for the forgiveness of your sins, doctrines as a substitutionary atonement. Christ died for us so that we could be treated as sons and daughters for our sins. Glories of Christ such as this has been the predetermined plan to save his predetermined people from eternity past, things like that. Yeah, yeah, that this, this won't this won't excite or capture the attention of the people today. They want to hear practical things. They want to hear relevant things. I can't think of anything more relevant than hearing about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what happens is this, in the, they leave the church, the church void of genuine conversions. What non-believer doesn't want a good marriage? What non-believer doesn't want to have a wise living? What non-believer doesn't want to have a decent marriage and decent relationship with their kids, Right? That's not what we're signing up for, the Lord tells Peter. See, seeing Jesus clearly means this. We set our minds on God's interests, not our own interests. We set our minds, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So the, the, the Christianity is a very lucid, very logical, very understandable religion. Where speak, oh Lord, I'm reading the scripture, speak to me, Lord. I'm hearing sermon preached by this Preacher, speak, oh Lord, talk to me. Download into my mind so I can see you more clearly. So setting our, seeing Jesus clearly means that we know who he is. He is the Christ. They got this right. Jesus is the supreme ruler of all. He's coming back and he's established his kingdom. Just the timing was wrong and how to get it done. You want to see Jesus more clearly? Yes, he's the supreme Lord. We don't tell him, no Lord. We don't say that. You say, yes, Lord. Number two, you want to see Jesus more clearly? You know why he came. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to save sinners like you and me. That's why he came. He came to establish the new heavens and a new earth in a future time. He did not come to establish and, and, and salvage this world. He came for the next life. And then, in conclusion, the more we know him, the more we know his mission, the more we're able to come alongside him, we're able to embrace difficulties of life. Now your expectations has been met. In some ways, this is how I counsel uh, couples who've been married or even thinking about getting married. I say this, what is the reason for marriage? Is it for happiness or is it holiness? So when hard things happen, and when two sinners are living together, you say, oh, the Lord is sanctifying me through this. Perhaps that's one of the most sanctifying agents 
in our lives were our, our relationships at home, particularly with our spouses if you're married. But if we have unmet expectations, like, you're supposed to make me happy, then you're going to be like that person that says, I don't believe in God anymore. You don't want to be that. What happens here is this. From the heights of uh, the foot of Mount Hermon, going as far north on the map as possible, from this point on, the Lord descends from the foot of Mount Hermon and starts working his way south to Jerusalem to die. From being the miracle worker, now everything is taking steps for him to become the martyr for the church. I want to ask this question to you today. Have you passed the spiritual test, spiritual eye exam today? Have you passed? And if he said, yes, I see Christ, the son of the living God, and he is my Lord and Savior. He died for me, and I pick up my cross daily to follow him. Amen. Be filled with joy. But if, as the Lord asks you, who do you say that I am? He gives you the most defining question in your entire life. I mean, your entire eternity begins with who Jesus is. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again on the third day? And by entrusting my life to him, saying, you own all of me, my mind, my body, my business, my marriage, my kids, my finances, everything belongs to you because you are my Lord, resurrected Lord and Savior. If you believe this, you pass the spiritual eye test. If you don't believe this or you're kind of bored right now, you either got some blind spot that are like boulders in your eyes or you're completely blind and you're here for the wrong reason. This is a, this is a loving word from the Lord. He treated the disciples the same way. I believe he's treating us the same way in a loving way. He's taking us by the hand and, said, and saying to us, let there be light perhaps in you today. This is what this is about. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that so clarifying what the, who the Lord is and what he's about? That's so clear. And the clearer we are, I promise you, as a brother and sister in the Lord, you experience much more joy as you walk through life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to preach on spiritual vision. Lord Jesus, we want to see you. We want to see you clearly. We want to know you more. We want to know what you're all about. We want to be this, to be able to touch and smell and taste you, Lord. We want to taste how sweet you are. We want to feel how gentle and how strong you are, Lord. We want to know this, Lord. And thank you that you speak to us through the scriptures and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We know that you're gracious to us, just like how you're gracious to this blind man. I know that you're putting your eyes on some of us right now, your hands upon us, Lord. You're speeding into our eyes and giving us first treatments, second treatments, third and fifth, more treatments. You continually do that for us. We thank you for how gracious and loving you are, Lord Jesus. So God, I pray that we would know your son as the Christ that came to seek and save the lost by dying on the cross and rising on the third day. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.